Wow, Arizona is grand. It's the Grand Canyon State, but it is also grand. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pockleb. And I'm Amanda Liberto. And today we are doing a movie swap. I watched Psycho for the first time. And Amanda, what did you watch? I watched Tombstone. A couple of Arizona movies, one of Amanda's favorite topics. Um, But before we get to that, how are you doing? What have you been watching? I'm doing well. Uh, What have I been watching? So I binged all of Better Call Saul in like 13 days. Naturally. I think there's 63 episodes. So (laughs) someone else can do the math on that. And uh, don't don't tell my doctor how little sleep I'm getting. Um, (laughs) Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul? I think Better Call Saul. But I'm going to start rewatching Breaking Bad to see if I can like compare how I feel. But I'm significantly more attached to the characters in Better Call Saul than I am in Breaking Bad. And it was like so artistic. It was so good. I saw the most recent Guardians movie, Guardians 3. thought it was like pretty good, but they're, they're losing me a little bit. Um, it's just like it felt really like predictable, but it was still like the best Marvel movie I've seen in a long time at the same time. So that was like kind of a a weird back and forth I was feeling. And then more importantly than that, I've watched the first six James Bond films now. (laughs) I have been going through my movie completionist list. um, And my friend Max is like a huge James Bond fan. Like he invited me over to his house to watch him. Well, him and Maddie, my two friends who are together and live together. And I knew that he was a James Bond fan. But like there's like framed old school movie posters of like original James Bond movies like in their kitchen. (laughs) And I was like, oh, you like love James Bond movies. And he has all of them on DVD and all of them on Blu-ray. And like I that's like a that's an obsession I can get behind. <laughs> Love that. Um, what, do you have a favorite of those first six? Yeah, I think Goldfinger so far has been my favorite. Um, I really have enjoyed that one a lot. So I'm excited to finish watching them all and get through them because I've only watched basically uh, these original Sean Connery movies. And then I've seen all of the uh, Daniel Craig movies, but sort of nothing in between. So I'm excited to keep going. Goldfinger is my favorite non-Daniel Craig Bond song. Oh yes, well yes, of Cause course. Because sometimes I just it's like so to walk good. around and be like Goldfinger. It's so easy to get stuck in your head. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? What have you been up to? What have you been watching? Uh, I also watched Guardians three. I thought it was very solid. I probably think it was like a top three or four best post Endgame Marvel entry. I've never been huge on Guardians. Uh, I think this was a rare MCU movie where the third act was probably the best part. But as a person who dates someone who owns bunnies, a brutal watch. I don't know if I want to watch it again, honestly. Um, I mean, I will I, because I am who I am. But uh, there's some stuff that, that was really difficult to, to watch. On like the other end of the budgetary spectrum, I watched How to Blow Up a Pipeline, um, which is kind of styled as like an environmentalist heist movie situation. I liked it a lot. I thought it, I thought it had a really like rock solid cast. I think Sasha Lane is probably the most notable name of the people that are in that one. Um, 
And in the first half of the year, there hasn't been a ton of movies that have been like, ooh, I think that will make my like end of year top 20 list. But I do think um, that one probably will make it. And then another film that I've watched is an anime classic, Akira. People don't know that's like it's like the gif with the motorcycle slide and it looks really cool and kiki palmer did it in nope uh it's a classic and i uh, really enjoyed it it's fun to kind of catch up on those movies as well because that's a that's a huge blind spot for myself so um that is what i've been watching why don't we talk about the movies we're swapping Nice. Yeah. It does not need to be said how much I love Arizona. I'm actually even wearing my iHeart Arizona Independent Music Venues t-shirt. Oh my god. <laughs> what I thought in- about wearing the Valley Bar shirt that you got me. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, first of all, support all of your independent uh, music venues. But uh, yeah, love Arizona. Movies had been made here for a really long time. I can talk more about sort of why they're not made here anymore. But um, also two great classics that are set and filmed in Arizona that we wanted to swap. So any excuse to get you to watch a Hitchcock. Even though this is our first time in two years doing an Arizona swap, uh, I feel like you've shepherded in the state of Arizona in at least half of our podcast. I, I really try. I take a notice. And I, it's so rarely uh, brought up or mentioned. So anytime I see it, I'm like, oh. Speaking of why uh, Arizona is hardly mentioned in films, why don't you talk about something that is uh, near and dear to your heart? If you haven't noticed, it's Arizona. Um, step up on that soapbox and talk about uh, the 48th state. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot I could say about the 48th state, but specifically, I'll talk about why movies. <laughs> if you want more, here. you can listen to your myriad podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, movies in Arizona were movies were made in Arizona for like a really long time. A lot of westerns were filmed in Arizona, and then even like more modern classics like Raising Arizona, obviously Jerry Maguire. Um, even things like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Like, there's a lot of things through the 90s that were filmed here, but then you also have like your original, um, your early like Westerns film were filmed here a lot. There was a scene in The Star is Born um, from 1976 that was filmed in Arizona. But in the 2000s, basically Canada started a tax incentive to try to get filmmakers to start filming movies there instead of in Los Angeles. Nowadays, you'll see a lot of times where it's like, this is New York, but it's definitely Vancouver. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Or Toronto. Yeah, or yeah, exactly. So that's sort of like why that happened. And some states really quickly, like Georgia and New Mexico, Georgia obviously being where the city of Atlanta is, and a ton of stuff being filmed there, just like from all the Avengers films to like, Baby Driver and like all that kind of stuff. New Mexico has a tax incentive program as well. Obviously, all of Better Call Saul and uh, Breaking Bad, as we were just talking about, are filmed there. Um, but pretty much any time it's like quote unquote Arizona, it's like really New Mexico, <laughs> or it's either Arizona or whatever it's Texas. I think like Hell or High Water. Yeah, uh, I think Three Ten to Yuma. Exactly. That's like all New Mexico, um, and it's basically because like the filmmakers can get money kicked back to them in the form of a tax credit. Um, Arizona had a program for about four years, ending in 2010. And then after that date came up, they just never started it back up again. And some people are 
trying to get a new bill passed in the Arizona legislature to bring that tax incentive back in order to like get people to like be spending money here and living here and moving here for filming purposes. Um, it has some bipartisan support, so I can't imagine it's going to like not go through, but you never know what's going to happen in the Arizona legislature. And, uh, but yeah, that's, that's why, that's why movies aren't filmed here anymore. And both of these movies that we're swapping were very famously filmed here, but like a long, it was a long time ago. You know, let's go back to Phoenix. You know, love the waste management open. Love winter. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, you know what? Like, give me a real housewives of Scottsdale. They tried at one point. I do remember. Did they really? Yeah. A girl from my high school, her mom was going to be on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the high school I went to. <laughs> oh, Lord. I love that you lived in Phoenix for like four years and you're like, let's go back to Phoenix. The waste management open. <laughs> Someplace I definitely never went. I was like, there's like a, a lot <laughs> you love about to think of like, That's what you pick for my godforsaken city. <laughs> I was watching Full Swing on Netflix earlier. All right, let's get into this. Or if not, I could just talk about Arizona forever. So let's flip the coin. Amanda, call it. Heads. It's heads. Great. Let's talk about Psycho. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> All right, Zach, you watched probably Alfred Hitchcock's most famous movie, Psycho. Tell us what happened. What's the summary? I'm going to go take a shower really quick. Oh, my Uh, God. Anyway, (laughs) so uh, Psycho, uh, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Ever heard of it? Written by Joseph Stefano, based on the book of the same name of Robert Bloch. The movie opens in Phoenix with a big-ass shot of the Westwood Ho, and then cuts to a hotel where Marion Crane, played by Janet Lee is on her lunch break with her boyfriend, Sam Loomis, played by John Gavin, and they are talking about getting married. Very exciting. However, because of Sam's alimony payments to his ex-wife, they cannot at the moment. When Marion returns to work at her real estate office, she steals a cash payment of $40,000 that she is supposed to deposit for work and takes off for Fairvale, California, where Sam lives. After pulling over to take a nap, a police officer wakes her up and spooks her, so Marion trades her car in for another with California plates. Unfortunately, the cop has been watching her the whole time, so it doesn't really matter. She continues driving, and a huge storm forces her to pull over and stay at the Bates Motel, where she meets the proprietor, Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins. She gets a room, and then there she hears Norman arguing with his mother in the house that he lives in next to the motel. Later, Norman provides a meal and the two chat. There, Norman explains his relationship with his domineering mother, who is ill, lives with him in the house, and then he also talks about his love for taxidermy. Strange. I guess, I'm not going to kink shame anyone. Uh, it's not <laughs> always a kink. Hobby shame. A I don't hobby. know what else to call it. Jesus. <laughs> Marion suggests that he get out from his mother's thumb, and she has a change of heart herself to drive back to Phoenix the next morning to return the money. After their little dinner and conversation, she goes to take a shower, and a shadowy figure comes and stabs her to death. Norman sees the aftermath, cleans everything, and dumps all the evidence into Marion's car, and then sinks the car in a swamp. Marion's sister Lila, played by Vera Miles, arrives in Fairvale a week later to talk to Sam about the theft of the money and Marion's disappearance. Then, a private investigator named Arbogast, who's played by Mar- who is played by Martin Balsam, approaches them and reveals he was hired to retrieve the money. Arbogast goes to Bates Motel and questions Norman and starts to pick up on some inconsistency in Norman's story. When Arbogast tries to look for Norman's mother in the house, he is killed as well. 
Sam and Lila decide to go to the motel for themselves after not hearing back from Arbogast, and they alert the local sheriff, who actually tells them that Norman's mother had died a decade ago. Sam and Lila then go to the motel to investigate. As Sam distracts Norma, Lila sneaks into the house, but Norman gets suspicious, knocks Sam out, and goes to find Lila, who in the meantime has discovered that Norman's mother is actually in the form of a mummified body, and then she turns around, Norman appears wearing a women's clothes and a wig and tries to kill Lila, but Sam shows up to save the day at the last second. In the police station, a psychiatrist explains Norman had a split personality, and then we cut to Norman, who is detained, and we hear quote-unquote mother taking over as Norman's main personality. How'd I do? Whew, you did good. There's a lot that happens. That's a good movie. I skipped over a 10-minute monologue from the psychiatrist. Oh, that's fine. That's good. All it is is that he explains that Norman had split personality and that mother is taking over. <laughs> it's something. Could have been an email. <laughs> that's true. Um, wh- <laughs> God, I just like blew past that one. Totally no sold that one. Um, why don't you tell me why you picked this movie? I'm funny, Zach. You just have to listen. Um, huh? I, <laughs> I picked this movie because... I mean, it's like one of the best American-made movies of all time, and it was like ripe for this podcast. This is like one of the reasons, this is like a perfect example of like why we started this podcast, Um, and I was very excited to show it to you. I also know that you do like Alfred Hitchcock films, so I was, that gave me like extra excitement. Real hot take there, like Alfred Hitchcock films, but I, I do think actually this movie swap is the distillment of like the genesis of the podcast of like... I like bang, bang, crashing, shooting films. Um, and you turn your brain off at that. And then you love scary stuff. And I'm a wuss. Um, so we were holding each other's hands yeah. as we watch these films. But Psycho, definitely a palatable one. And a freaking classic, like you said. It's so good. A banger. All right. So what was your first impression watching it? And what stood out? The first thing I literally said was, oh, my God, the Westward Ho. Uh, <laughs> That's what I do every single time I see this movie. <laughs> Other than that obvious thing, uh, Janet Lee's face really stood out um, oh. for myriad reasons. Obviously, the shower scene, which we'll get to in a second. But I thought the long take as she's driving and you hear the voiceover of her like imagining the conversations or actually kind of hearing the conversations that are being held about her as she tries to get away with this money. Um was real special. I mean, the score obviously helped with that, but she the camera just has to sit on her face as she silently drives, and she has to do a lot of facial acting, which I feel like is something I talk about like too much, but um, in this movie was kind of stark. The other thing that stood out, obviously we have to talk about, is the shower scene. Yeah. Um, maybe one of the 10 most famous scenes in cinema history. Yeah. Um, iconic for every reason that you've already heard about, but... Um, there's so much lore about it, so much so that there's a documentary called 7852, um, which is a reference to uh, the amount of cuts and the time span 78 takes, or 78 cuts in, I think, 52 seconds or something that uh, oh, wow. was made, uh, or which was made about the scene itself. But it took seven days to, f- it's been distilled to every single granular detail to like, they use Hershey's chocolate syrup as the blood because in black and white film, red wouldn't have, have popped as well. That's um, so screen. cool. That's so um, smart. Even for as many times as I heard the music cue and seen Janet Lee's iconic scream queen face, it still held like real tension. And it and it wasn't. I mean, this is a 2023 lens. Like 60 years later, it's not as grotesque as I don't know. You would think a shower stabbing scene yeah. would be. Like you, there's like maybe one frame where you see it 
knife hit skin, but you don't even see like her stab wounds or incredibly gory. Like I just watched a film where a dude's face gets smashed in by a guitar. Oh, (laughs) and like slasher films these days are like borderline out of control and I'll still see them. But like it, (laughs) it, that was something that struck me on this watch as well was like, oh, this is so much more tame than the desensitization of what we've got now um but also like at that moment that was unheard of yeah and the fact that it was janet lee she was a like pretty big star at the time and then you're killing your ostensibly the main character um halfway through the film it was it was really stunning even though i knew it was coming i maybe thought it was coming a little bit later in the film like yeah. more towards the the third act or, or, or something like that, but not in the middle. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's silly to say like, wow, what a scene, but like, wow, what a scene. The first time I watched it, I was also really surprised how early the shower scene is because without having seen it, but knowing the scene is in the movie, you might expect that this is like the big climactic, like finish the big kill, but it, it is the big kill, but it is not the end of the movie. Um, it's actually sort of like the catalyst of the movie. And it is that that halfway point um, of it. It's also not very vulgar, despite the fact that she's in the shower. Like it could have been like a lot more like a, a chance to like show like her naked body or like whatever. But that just like obviously wasn't happening in movies back then. And I think that that it holds like a lot more intensity because we are not like worried about like the the sexual scandal of like seeing Janet Lee in the shower. Hitchcock movies are always a little funny because you know he how much he was like constrained by the production code and like he had to find ways to build in either uh, violence and suspense or like sexiness into movies without breaking the code. Um, if you listen to Tarantino ever talk about Hitchcock, he'll just go on for like hours about that. But uh, I, I do think that it's just a masterclass in building tension. Um, Roger Ebert, the king, ha- has said about that scene, quote, this remains the most effective slashing in movie history, suggesting that situation and artistry are more important than graphic details. Yeah. Um, which I think is like basically what we were trying to say. Like it just doesn't have those uh, scandalous um, kind of eye popping grotesque details but it does have all the suspense built in to these quick cuts in the music um which kind of leads me to the other point that stood out to me is the score fucking rules yeah man Um, bernard herman he actually uh is the one that pushed for music to be included in the shower scene so originally alfred hitchcock wanted all of the scenes at bates motel to have no music to kind of create like that eerie haunting feeling but then Herman, you know, made the score anyway and put it into the scene and showed it to Hitchcock. Hitchcock agreed that Herman was right and then doubled his salary. That's awesome. And honestly, <laughs> good idea. It's the most like one of the most recognizable movie scores of all time. And even if like you don't know movies that well and might not be able to pick up where it's from you're like oh that's from a movie though like that sound encapsulates what horror is in film from that point on yeah and like the thing is you don't even hear her like you don't hear janet lee screeching all that like maybe she screams a little bit but like the score really takes it over 
Yeah. And it, it makes you feel like you're hearing the knife go into flesh or you're hearing, I don't know, just the violence that's happening without even seeing it, like we were saying, um, which is crazy. But also the score is, the score is like really driving in uh, the more mystery and the more mysterious in the investigative scenes um, or her driving, um, like, like I was talking about earlier. It's mm-hmm. kind of like this doting score that um, is just dripping with like intrigue and mystery and suspense. Um, I-, I loved it. Um, also, Busta Rhymes sampled the score for his song, Give Me Some More, which is uh, <laughs> hilarious. I love Busta. <laughs> Amazing. All right. um another thing that stood out was there was like still a couple twists i didn't know about despite really knowing a decent amount about this movie i didn't realize there was going to be another murder um the one on the staircase which might have the coolest shot of the film yeah i like that shot a lot like falling down the stairs and then uh also didn't know the truth about norman's mother i had a hint of something was up with that just because i i think that's like the crux of bates motel the show but Mm -hmm. um I didn't know that's the direction it was going. And I actually was kind of almost lost in a sense when um, I, I had thought Norman was the one that did the shower killing. But then whenever they show what we know is Norman running away and he had the wig on, I was like, oh, is that the mom actually? Uh, it was very uh, confusing for me as a dumb movie watcher. I love it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Hitchcock, he stills, you know. He got it. Keeping me on my toes. <laughs> uh and then the last thing that really stood out is that motels just always seem like a bad time. Um, yeah. Seemed like a bad time in 1960. Seemed like a bad time when I watched White Noise last year. Yep. Uh, just not a good choice overall if you have to be in a motel. Have you ever stayed in a motel? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. have. Um, not since I've had a salary, but <laughs> <laughs> we also have Airbnbs too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. What have you thought about most since you finished watching the film? I cannot imagine what it was like watching this film in 1960 because there was no there was none of those references. There was um, all of the surprise uh, in, in research. I realized that, you know, <laughs> almost like Avengers Endgame, there was a big anti-spoiler campaign around this movie like don't spoil it. Whatever you do, don't let people know that Janet Lee dies in the middle of the film. So much so that Psycho actually started movie start times. What? Um, <laughs> so before movies used to just, they would be showing at a theater, you buy your ticket, you go into the theater, and then it would just be rolling. Um, th- they would sometimes show like newsreels and uh, announcements or whatever in between, mm-hmm. but it would just keep be going semi-consistently. So you could walk into a movie and be like midway through, but because of the murder at the middle of the movie hitchcock didn't want people to go in expecting janet lee and then it's already halfway through the film and they're just waiting and waiting and waiting for her and all of a sudden the movie's over so they started showtimes that is (laughs) wild it actually um helped build the hype of the movie because you'd have these long lines out of the theater waiting to go see psycho um which so that that's that's so nuts like that's crazy what? like i guess i yeah i guess i never really thought about conceptually a time like that there were no movie times before i i knew that they were like playing they would play clips of like the news or like about the war and like things like that like in between films i just never really thought about it like being 
like in between the movies because you never know when the movie's gonna start right it's just like one of those things that you hear and you're like we didn't always do that yeah oh wow Um, amazing alfred hitchcock what a guy (laughs) this movie wasn't really loved uh a good amount of people hated it um they thought it was grotesque they thought it was too violent too much which is hilarious considering the conversation we had like five minutes ago um but Andrew Cyrus of Village Voice was one of the first raves. Um, he called Hitchcock, quote, the most daring avant-garde filmmaker in America today. Um, and it really had a, a cultural impact on on sexuality shown in movies, on violence shown in movies. It showed a toilet for, like, the first time in a mainstream movie, which I That's guess wild. they didn't show toilets before because it was too, I don't know, not risque, but, like, private. Yeah. I guess I didn't realize how layered the impact on cinema this movie had. Yeah, and it's, like, it's not only you know, move movie wise, or, or it's not even within the industry. It's like you said, uh, we talked about like culturally and all the references it's um, logistically, like literally like the, what of the movies, the how of watching movies has all been impacted by this, um, by this film and read that it was, I read that it was considered the first major slasher film, um, which I guess makes sense. But I, I figured like 1960, there's a whole like 30 years before that 20, 40, 30 years, um, before that of of film history and so to this be the first slasher is kind of wild i love that and of course i'm not sure if you're gonna bring this up but i'll just talk about it now that is what inspires john carpenter to get uh jamie lee curtis for halloween which was going to be his first major slasher film and sort of like reinvented what a slasher is and you know, isn't is definitely not like the birthplace of slasher films, but is like a huge major checkpoint. And it's because he wanted he he wanted Janet Lee's daughter. Like he wanted that same face, he wanted that same energy. And fortunately, uh Jamie Lee Curtis can also act. <laughs> and like her mother was the OG Scream Queen, and then she sort of becomes like the next generation's OG Scream Queen. And like she entered in like a whole different genre like generation and inflection point in scream queens and slasher films. And then, and then the other thing that um, really I thought about is the way the plots laid out. It's every beat is a misdirection. Um, You think the money is going to be super crucial um, for the entirety of the plot ends up not really mattering. Um, Her new car ends up not really mattering. And, And like all these tense moments that you think like, Oh, Um, especially now watching movies where I'm like, oh, I should remember that. Or like, you know, like Chekhov's gun, like, (laughs) like, oh, this is all going to matter. Um, And then it kind of doesn't uh, in a, in a deep way or in a, in a real way. Like there's obviously the money is a driving force of the plot, but it, but like the theft of it or, or Janet Lee's theft of it isn't as crucial to the plot as you would think when it's opening the film, which I thought, you know, uh, was really fun, especially since Hitchcock is such a pacing god um, mm-hmm. in his movies that uh, he keeps really like jerking the um, the vehicle of the film um, just to keep you just just slightly off balance before really like flipping it on its head midway through. That's so good. He's so smart. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what were some of the things you looked up after watching the movie? Uh, I wanted to know why I was in black and white. Um, I know this film was in 1960. When I think of a lot of my favorite Hitchcock films, Vertigo, Rear Window, um, they're in Technicolor. 
Um, and he has a real beautiful way of, of utilizing pops of colors in his film. Um, but if you go into the production notes about this film, there's like so much constraints that he put on himself. He, he made, he wanted to make this movie for very cheap. So he used his, uh, television crew from his TV show, Alfred Hitchcock presents, um, the black and white film was cheaper. Um, he was feeling like he had a kind of creative block. And so he put himself in the sandbox and he gave himself hurdles to jump and, and hoops to jump through, um, to push himself and challenge himself so he could, you know, just come up with something. I think this movie is in 1960. And by this time he had just come off of North by Northwest and vertigo in, in, um, 58 and 59 respectively. Uh, North by Northwest is like one of his biggest, if not his biggest hits, um, financially, but he wanted to, I don't know, flex his muscles. He was a creative at the end of the day. Um, and so it's cool that he put all these roadblocks on himself, um, uh, to go along with the fact that the studio didn't really want him to make this movie. Uh, you know, it's not exactly like slasher films weren't a thing yet. Why would you want to put a slasher film into theaters, especially when you just came off of North by Northwest? So, uh, I thought that was cool as well that he's like, no, I, I really just wanted like do this <laughs> that's so interesting about the um the black and white because for the longest time psycho was the only hitchcock movie i had seen like i saw it pretty young it's it's not super graphic and i was like a young horror fan so it was like not a crazy one for my mom to show me and stuff like that but then i probably only had seen psycho for like the following 10 to 12 years of my life. And then I watched Vertigo and I was like, holy cow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That, that bridge is really red. (laughs) Have you guys seen this? Look at this green. Look at that. Holy. You ever seen green? (laughs) Not like that. (laughs) I always think of Hitchcock as a black and white filmmaker, even though it's just this one movie that, but it is like, so in my thought process of like alfred hitchcock movies especially by the 50s the the one film that i think he had made in black and white was strangers on a train and that was in 51 maybe that's the other thing because i also love strangers on a train (laughs) so (laughs) maybe that like doubles down but also uh, so another part of that black and white choice is uh he knew that this film was going to have a murder and he didn't want it to be too gory for audiences, which is fair. I can't imagine, or maybe I could imagine watching this film colorized and just seeing like bright red technicolor blood. Anyway, uh, other things I looked up about this film. Um, I wanted to know who did the mother's voice and it was actually three people. Um, they all did different portions of it. So it's Virginia Craig, Paul Jasmine and Jeanette Nolan uh, mixed together. And then Virginia Craig did the final speech. Um, as, as we kind of push into Norman at, in the in the facility. I love asking you about these movies that are like so beloved to me and finding out what you were curious about because I've never once in my life thought to look up <laughs> who played mother. <laughs> but I just want to know who is mother. You do this, um, you do this like kind of a lot and I love it. <laughs> look, we should have a pot. Great idea. <laughs> Um, another thing I looked up was I wanted to know what happened to Lee and Anthony Perkins career wise, kind of shocking that we're, I don't know, 30 minutes into a discussion about psycho. And this is my first time really bringing up Anthony Perkins. I was just thinking that. (laughs) (laughs) So Perkins is iconic 
Um, he's he was used to be a, a recording artist as well. He has some music out there, which is really weird to listen to after you watch this movie. Uh, considered one of the great New York film stars, he was compared to Marlon Brando and James Dean. He's a gay icon. Gay icon. He had a sprawling career. So he he did eventually die of AIDS, but he, along with Rock Hudson, are considered two of the most notable Hollywood actors to have died from AIDS and brought a lot of awareness um, to the disease. He did have a little bit of trouble, like after this movie, just in terms of being typecast as like quirky killer guy. Um, it doesn't help that he went back for like three more Psycho right. <laughs> uh, sequels, like twenty years later. Exactly. So it, it, he he dipped back into the well, but he he did have, like I said, a, a very sprawling career on stage, on TV, um, in film. So, uh, you know, that, he, he's a filmography that I'm like already excited to kind of dive back into. I was about to say he gives such a killer performance, but he, is, he gives such a spot on performance, um, whether it's how meek he is whenever Janet Lee first shows up and he's like obviously attracted to her and stalking her in a way mm-hmm. and creeping on her um or to how cocky he kind of becomes uh when arbogast is visiting him and he's kind of mixing through his different details it, and it puts you just on edge just enough to be like even though you know he's a killer and you are like or maybe you don't you know, even though you have a, a sense that something's off about the guy um it's all he kind of can create a sympathetic figure just in the way he like moves and the physicality that he holds again watching him in this movie if i was in 1960 like if you look at anthony perkins life he was like a teen idol um mm-hmm. and, a, and a heartthrob he well, he's know, a real cutie i mean they're also like the studios were trying to like really uh heterosexualize him so because of both his ability and that aspect he was cast alongside like audrey hepburn and sophia loren and shirley mclean and he was in a movie with ingrid bergman to um all these romantic films before psycho um and so it was a real push against type, uh, which was really cool. Um, and then he obviously was in uh, movies after this, like, you know, Murder on the Orient Express and um, was very awarded throughout his career. But uh, this was and is his most iconic performance because how could it not be? It's it's spectacular. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this was also sort of Janet Lee's peak but she had other very important movies at the same time yeah that was the other part i looked up i wanted to see what what did happen to janet lee um like what was her career like she didn't have as like i said as sprawling or as like you said as sprawling a uh, career like before this she was in um angels in the outfield and little women and the naked spur um and she was also in uh touch of evil the orson welles movie like two years before this so she was around and she was in stuff um i think my favorite movie that she is in is holiday affair um uh, it's like one of my new favorite christmas movies i've watched recently it's like from 1949 she stars across robert meacham um really good but this again definitely her peak yeah she was also in bye bye birdie three years after this which is Um, my other favorite janet lee movie which is a movie you love and i I have to watch (laughs) at some point but uh again psycho was what she was known for forever and ever um, so much so that her daughter, like you said, was cast in a slasher film in part because Jamie Lee Curtis was Janet Lee's daughter. So yeah. um, that's all you really need to know about that, that legacy. Oh, also, she was in The Manchurian Candidate, the original one. Yeah, the one we did not watch for this podcast, but you did watch in preparation for it. <laughs> because I'm a psycho. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> that's so annoying. 
And then last thing, the thing I looked up, obviously, was uh, the Oscars wanted to know how it did. And it was nominated for uh, four different awards, and it lost all four. Hitchcock was direct was nominated for Best Director, Lost Ability Wilder for The Apartment. What are you going to do there? Janet Lee was uh, nominated for Best Supporting Actress, lost to Shirley Jones for Albert Gantry. I think that's an L. Best Art Direction for a Black and White Film, lost to The Apartment. What are you going to do there? And then lost Best Cinematography for a Black and White Film to Sons and Lovers, which is a film I had never heard of. It's so funny that there were like two different uh, like categories for like black and white films or color films. All right. Do you have any other questions for me? I feel like you got like a very solid grasp on it, though. I know you've watched Bates Motel. You talked about it with people in our dorm, like common area, semi-often. Mm-hmm. And I just had no fucking clue what you guys were talking about. Um, just what are your general thoughts on the show? So I really liked the show. I don't think I watched past like maybe the second or third season. It's obviously been a really long time since I've watched it, but I know I didn't finish it, um, but it sort of like catalogs everything leading up to this moment. Um, so Freddie Highmore plays like a young Norman Bates and they look shockingly similar that was another thing i took away from watching this movie uh again for the podcast i was like wow he really does look like freddie highmore (laughs) that's awesome though i will say adult anthony perkins is a little cuter than adult freddie highmore on on letterboxd (laughs) the funniest thing was a lot of the uh, reviews were like i hate it when the murderer is hot or something yeah exactly absolutely he's such a cutie but um yeah from what i watched i really enjoyed it and i know like friends of ours watched the whole thing i just never really finished it but i i enjoyed it while i was watching it it's like a an amc show or something like that have you watched any of the other like the sequels or anything like that no <laughs> i but haven't they remade it with vince vaughn as um norman bates and it's like a shot for shot remake like literally they copied I didn't the shots know that um they did add a little bit of stuff that uh hitchcock couldn't because of the code but um roundly considered unsuccessful <laughs> yeah i did know that that because that came out in like the 90s i did know about yeah. it i've never seen it i didn't know it was like shot for shot usually around like halloween in october i'll watch like i try to watch like classic horror films i haven't seen before i'm kind of running out though because i've been fortunate enough to like binge so many of them um but maybe i should start adding these sort of like sillier like renditions of these films maybe i'll watch 90s psycho and then like the psycho sequels <laughs> this october you should just run just like you've watched all the james bond movies you should just watch all the psychos yeah or the time when i was sick in bed and i watched all of the scream films <laughs> yeah anyway do you have any other questions or uh comments well, my only other question you sort of answered is I wanted to know, like, at what point you figured out that it was Norman. And the, you said that you didn't know until the very end. And I always do forget that, like, I watch movies trying to solve them and you just, like, enjoy cinema. <laughs> I, like, can't turn my brain off. I'm like, what's going on? That's why I like like mystery films. You said that you were still surprised at the end that it was Norman. Yeah, I, th- I was. I My skin actively crawled when he when he showed up. Um ugh. Good. Amazing. I love it. I love that it can have that effect like all these years later. All right. My last question, as always, is would you watch it again? Yeah, I think. I mean, like, I'm not always flipping on slasher films ever, um, but this movie is really freaking good. So 
Maybe for some spooky vibes. Maybe. Near maybe. Halloween. Yeah. Maybe like, I'll just turn it down a little bit during this slasher scene. <laughs> Can watch it on mute. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> Don't watch it on mute. It's a beautiful score. <laughs> I, I, I know. I said so. <laughs> All right. And then something that we've been trying to do uh, recently is if you liked this movie or if you want to watch more movies like this, here are some other suggestions. Now, these are all movies we've already talked about because we had a very in-depth conversation about Psycho. But of course, Halloween with Jimmy Lee Curtis um, by John Carpenter. Any other Hitchcock movie, really, I would suggest maybe, you know, slip on one of those that are in black and white and see what it was like. Um, And then the Bates Motel TV show was my other suggestion. So I'm glad you asked me about it. (laughs) I think if you're going to double feature it, this one with rope would be good. I mean, that's an Amanda afternoon. Like, yeah, exactly. That makes me so happy. Wow. I love rope. (laughs) Rope (laughs) Start with some coffee and then end with some martinis. Yeah. Can't think about (laughs) martinis right now. (laughs) (laughs) But I can't think about Psycho, and I thought that was a great film, and I'm glad that I watched it. That's so good. All right. Well, we did it, friend. Let's go on to Tombstone, get all in the, the dusty parts of Arizona. This episode of Blind Spotters is definitely not brought to you by the Beverly Theater in downtown Las Vegas. The Beverly was imagined by the Rogers Foundation as a place to bring cinematic connectivity, novel collaborations, live happenings, and a zest for independent spirits in downtown Vegas. They host everything from concerts to book readings, and they also obviously have a great selection of indie cinema, revivals, and curated festivals. I've had the chance to see Escape from New York, Speed, and Kelly Reichardt showing up in their beautiful venue and i'm always plotting my next visit so make sure you go check out the beverly if you're in las vegas and support your local businesses you know amanda if i thought you weren't my friend i just don't think i could bear it you watch tombstone why don't you tell me what happened in this movie all right what a film all right so the The movie opens with a group of outlaws who wear red sashes, known as the Cowboys, led by Curly Bill Brocious, going into a Mexican town and killing a group of Mexican police officers. The priest in town warns them that their acts will be avenged by essentially the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. Cut to Wyatt Earp, played by Kurt Russell, a retired officer and nobleman reuniting with his brothers Virgil, played by Sam Elliott, and Morgan, played by Bill Paxton, uh, in Tucson before they go down to Tombstone. There, they find Doc Holliday, played by uh, Val Kilmer, Earp's longtime friend and famed gunslinger, who is healing from tuberculosis, though he is doing too much drinking to really be healing. His wife and sister, his wife and sisters-in-law, or is it sister-in-laws? Anyway, both of his brother, his his wife and his brother's wives come to um, while his wife is also actively developing a drug problem. Performer Josephine Marcus comes to town and her and Wyatt have like this, this energy. The Earps start a gambling game at the local saloon and they start making money. And this is where they run into the Cowboys. Tensions are rising and people are really wanting Wyatt to do something about it because he's 
used to be a peace officer, but he insists that he is retired and that he is not involving himself. Curly Bill shoots off his gun in a public space and the marshal tells him to give up his guns. He then kills the marshal and is taken to jail. He stands trial, but is found not guilty because nobody saw it. Uh, This makes Virgil very angry. So he becomes the marshal and sets up basically a weapons ban in this town. (laughs) At the moment I saw that, I was like, that's not going to end good. (laughs) This leads to basically the big fight at the OK Corral, which is very famous, where some of the cowboys are killed and two of the Earp brothers are injured. It's made clear that the sheriff and the cowboys are in allegiance and in retribution, the brothers are ambushed. In this uh, in this fight, Morgan is killed and Virgil is handicapped. He basically loses an, the use of his arm. Wyatt leaves Tombstone, but Ike Clayton and Frank Sitwell, two of the main cowboys, are there to attack him, basically. Wyatt notices, surprises the cowboys, kills Stillwell, and leaves Ike with a message that now he is the U.S. Marshal and will kill anybody wearing a red sash. This puts them basically on a plot for revenge. So Wyatt, Doc, and three former cowboys become a group and they go out seeking revenge. Wyatt kills Curly Bill and Johnny Ringo becomes the new head. Doc is getting worse. The tensions are getting worse. And Johnny Ringo sends Wyatt a message that he wants to end all of the hostilities. Unannounced to both Wyatt Earp and Johnny Ringo, Doc Doc comes first and demands a showdown and kills Ringo. They finish killing the rest of the cowboys and then Doc dies of tuberculosis eventually. Wyatt Earp finally goes after Josephine and they dance in the snow. I feel like I sort of yada yada part of it, but like, I feel like that's what happened. No, I thought you did good. Uh, this movie has a lot of montages. And so uh, I thought you wrapped it up all quite well. I had a little bit of a hard time the first time I watched it because I was like, I don't know. How did we get to where we are? Am I missing something? And then I re- I watched it and then I rewatched or I like read about it and then I rewatched it. And I was like, no, this is the point. The point is to just like be in this scene. Um, so why did you choose Tombstone? So this is definitely an imperfect but undeniably entertaining modern Western. It features Kurt Russell perhaps flexing a lot of his movie star powers, which we'll get into uh, in a moment. And then it also features what is probably Val Kilmer's best performance and most iconic one, um, depending on how you feel about Iceman and Top Gun and then um, his performance in Willow. So um, I know this isn't the greatest movie, especially in contrast to Psycho, but uh, I do think it captures both like the wild westness of Arizona at a certain point in time of history and also is just a very fun movie to watch. Um, so why don't you tell me what stood out to you on first watch and like those first impressions? So obviously <laughs> the first thing that stood out to me is that Arizona is so beautiful. <laughs> I love the desert. You guys, <laughs> I, there was like a whole scene where I was like, I can't believe I'm watching two movies in three months in which a cowboy is running, is like galloping away from a sunset on like, because <laughs> it happens with Owen Wilson's character in Armageddon also <laughs> when they like first find him. <laughs> 
almost shot for shot the same movie or the same scene. Um, <laughs> um, all of my tattoos are Arizona themed. <laughs> it's a complicated state, but I do love it. It's gorgeous. Um, no, but like I was talking about earlier, like so few movies are actually filmed in Arizona these days that it was really beautiful to see like our natural scenery play such a big part of the movie. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And that's just, it's not a big focus of Psycho. Like Psycho could have taken place anywhere and just happens to take place in Phoenix and has some like iconic shots of downtown. But like this movie is like, is Arizona. Like there's, you can't have one without the other. Um, so I thought that was very cool. And they really captured some like really great shots and trying to figure out like where they were filming and, and all that kind of stuff, which we'll, you know, we'll get to later. But uh, similar to the first time I watched Psycho when I thought it would all lead up to the most iconic scene, I was taken aback that the OK Corral shooting happens like almost in the middle of the movie. Like it is not the climactic ending point uh, and not everything is like working up to it and I that really sort of like caught me off guard um while I was watching it so what's funny is I didn't know the okay corral shootout was like a famous thing until like after I'd watched the movie and saw that uh this was like a recreation of a famous legendary moment or whatever. So again I was totally oblivious the first time I watched this compared to you who was anticipating this this shoot em up scene so something else that I really like stood, something else that really stood out to me that you mentioned earlier is Val Kilmer. So I don't really know much about him or his career. Um, I've seen Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick, and that might be all the movies I've seen of him. Um, but he was really excellent in this film, and I loved like how good he looks as he's getting worse. Oh, like if that makes sense, um, the makeup is great. He plays it off so well. Um, and you know, maybe it's just because I'm in Arizona, like a lifelong Arizona resident, but I didn't know, I did know a little bit about like the real friendship between Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp. Um, I feel like it's one of those things you can't go through like primary education in Arizona and not learn about at least once. Um, but I did know that he was quite famously a real tuberculosis patient in Arizona. Um, and as Zach plugged my podcast earlier. I'll also say that I did a whole episode of Valley 101 about tuberculosis patients and sanitariums in Arizona and like a very famous one in Tempe that is haunted. So that was like a really big part of people moving here was our dry air for tuberculosis. And he was obviously one of the more famous ones. What did you think of the Doc Holiday accent? Because it's very distinct. Yeah. I mean, I guess I like don't know what I don't know much about Doc Holliday except for the OK Corral. So, like, I don't know where he's from. I don't know if, like, he actually has this sort of, like, southern accent. Like, I, I just, it was definitely a choice. But I will say it did help me, like, distinguish him from the other characters in the beginning when they all felt very similar before I, like, had a good idea of who the characters were. Um, especially since, like, he doesn't really look like Top Gun Val Kilmer or even modern day Val Kilmer, which are the only two versions of him that I know. Like I had to look up like, I thought Val Kilmer was in this movie. And, and I was like, oh, 
that's him. Uh, so <laughs> I, I think that it helped me like sort of pinpoint who he was. I alluded to this in our last pod, but I almost picked Tombstone for our very first podcast where it was like scene stealing performances or whatever the topic was because of Doc Holliday. The blend of things that uh, Val Kilmer created to come up with this accent was basically he's a southern aristocratic gentleman from Georgia. It also makes sense uh, that he's from Georgia and then the Earps are from Kansas. And so those are two very different types of people. But this is one of those performances that comes up a lot when people say like biggest Oscar snubs ever or like a lot of his peers were saying like he should have been recognized um, with an Oscar nomination. And many people think it's his best performance because he's so charismatic. You know, he's the number two, right? He's like the most recent example of this kind of role is Lashana Lynch in The Woman King, um, where you just get to have all the cool lines and the charisma. But um, he also pulls off like the emotional conversations that he has with Kurt Russell as Wyatt Earp. And he should have been nominated just based off the way uh, the exchange is like they're at the creek and he's like hacking up a lung and the guy's like, why are you doing this? And he's like, Wyatt Earp is my friend. And he's like, oh, I got a lot of friends. And he's like, I don't. And I'm just, <laughs> it's so heartbreaking and beautiful. <laughs> I look up like super cuts of Doc Holliday quotes or him like spinning the little cup on his hand. Yeah, that that part was really fun. Uh, I would say I'm pretty like, sure you asked me a question somewhere in here, but I, I don't know if I even answered it. But no, it's good. This is perfect. You this started because you asked me a question. So this is perfect. <laughs> um, another thing that like stood out to me is was like almost distractingly so <laughs> Is that Kurt Russell's mustache is atrocious. It's so bad. It's and, like, The whole movie, I was like, that is the fakest looking fake mustache. And I found out it's not. It's a real mustache. Um, it looks way too long. It looks so prosthetic and stupid. <laughs> um, and I think that's compared to like, like Sam Elliott is obviously famous for having a great mustache. And so he just continues having a great mustache in this movie. And Val Kilmer's mustache is like so good and so charismatic. And I just is very, um, I just can't get with it. <laughs> That's really funny. I, I can't grow a mustache. I only get neck beard. So <laughs> um, another thing that I was thinking about as I was watching the movie is uh, obviously like the women in the movie are not a main focus, but I thought that if they had changed some of the actresses, that they would have had a little bit more substance to them. Um, I don't think that any of the women in the movie are bad, per se. Like, I don't think any of the performances are bad. Um, it's just that, like, there are so many good actors in this movie outside of the main two. I mean, Billy Bob Thornton is really fun. Sam Elliott, like I mentioned, is great. But you even get, like, Billy Zane is, like, very fun in this movie as, like... Uh, as Billy Zane. Yeah, basically, <laughs> as, like, curly Billy Zane. And even, like, super minor roles, like Terry O'Quinn, who plays the mayor, like, he does a great job. He has, like, four lines. And, like, John Corbett, who plays, like, a guy who shoots off his gun during Billy Zane's performance is, like memorable and like i think that there's a lot of like little roles for men that are really good that i think that they if they had chosen just different actresses it could have like elevated everybody i think so uh dana wheeler dana wheeler nicholson plays wyatt earp's wife um at the time she had been in a few movies and then Dana Delaney, who played Josephina, the singer, she was a TV star. Uh, she wasn't really a movie star at the time. Uh, those are the two main roles, obviously, for women. And I would change both of them. I think if you had somebody like, 
And I looked up like the ages for all of these people, which is also what took me so long when we were trying to record. But like Sandra Bullock, Michelle Pfeiffer, Holly Hunter, if any of those actresses were given like the three minutes of screen time total, like I think like everything could have been elevated. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow is a little young, but it's not really clear like how old Dana Wheeler Nicholson's character is. So like maybe he could have had like a young wife who's a drug addict and like that could have been really cool. Like these were all women who had like a lot of gravitas in 93 also along with like these actors who had a lot of gravitas. And so I would have liked to have seen more of that. But as my next point is, the, the women were not the focus of this film. So it kind of got lost. So uh, that also leads me to my last point, which is this is a movie for boys. Um, and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a shoot 'em up cowboy movie with silly action scenes and Kurt Russell screaming, hell's coming with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and like uh, being a, you know, straight dude, I'm just like, hell yeah, brother. Like it would have been cool if any of the female characters had a pulse. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, and I but think that like, you don't even have to change like anything else. But if you had actresses that were on the same level as the bit player actors, then everything could have just been elevated. I do think, and I think we'll talk about this, but there is some uh, troubled production and a kind of hacksaw movie just put together. So uh, there might have been more for them to do uh, in the original plan, but it uh, just kind of got boiled down to it being a Western that focused more on on Doc and Wyatt than anything else. Um, I did see a review that it's like a really tough movie for people who like think all white dudes look the same. And I was thinking of you with <laughs> yeah. watching a few good men. <laughs> True that. <laughs> Cosmato's like also directed like Cobra and like Rambo. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. it's just those movies, but in the wild west. He makes movies for boys. Um, yep. But even like my comment when we watched Armageddon was that like, I was so surprised and pleased how well Liv Tyler was in Armageddon. Like she, that, all of those same lines played by a different actress because they didn't care who to cast is a very different role. And I think like if they had just cared a little bit more as to who to cast for those female roles in this movie would have just brought the whole movie back up. I don't even think they have to give them more screen time, more lines, more character. I just, none of that. But, like, if young Gwyneth Paltrow was the one, like, chugging drugs, like, it just would have been more engaging. Honestly, the most involved they are in the entire movie, all all of the Earp wives, is when they get off the train and Wyatt Earp is like, let's just drink this image in. And that's yeah. all they're there for. But that's a totally fair point. What have you thought about the most since watching? So I thought a lot about Kurt Russell's career because he's the actor in this movie I probably have the most relationship to. This is where I was going to talk more about John Carpenter, but he's in some of my favorite John Carpenter films. He is the lead actor in The Thing, which is like one of my top five favorite movies of all time. Um, And he's in Escape to New York, which we just both talked about and watched recently. And I feel like he has a very different energy in those movies than he does as like, I am an, I'm like a more formed adult. I am like an older man. Like everything he does, like basically like 93 on is just a very different energy. He said that being in this movie along with Tequila Sunrise and Tango and Cash is where he felt that Hollywood finally respected him and sort of like gave him more to stand on. 
which I thought was very interesting. I think those other movies are excellent, but they were probably easy, easily dismissible at the time of being like genre films or like he can only play like one type of character. He's not playing Snake in The Thing, but he's not not playing Snake <laughs> in The Thing. So uh, it is cool that he recognizes sort of this time period as like a big turning point for his career. Yeah, Kurt Russell's an interesting movie star because he has like gravitas and he has huge classic movies, but it seems like he never had like the one. In the sliding doors moment, right, is he was almost Han Solo. Wow, I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, and then that role goes to Harrison Ford. And him and Harrison Ford kind of have the same, not the same energy, but like really attractive kind of gruff guys and but still charismatic, whether they're playing like an anti-hero or a hero or like even a villain. And so he never had that franchise, but he had the partnership with John Carpenter and he has Backdraft. He has Overboard, a movie that I, I really love. Tango I love Cash. Overboard. <laughs> yeah. and But he never has like, for lack of a better term, like an apex. Yeah. Like what's, what's his biggest moment? Like it's probably the thing because he gets nominated for an Oscar a little bit before that and people know who he is and he's transitioned from like Disney star who had a baseball career to like Hollywood star. Yeah. But like my relationship to Kurt Russell is like a real dad thing because like of Overboard and then a movie you're going to reference and then Sky High. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Going back in time and, and kind of understanding like who Kurt Russell is and was and how he trans like even watching Escape from New York. Right. And mm-hmm. seeing how much of a push against his type that was, I guess it's it's a weird career. But it's reversed like that. It's reversed because like that was his type. And then movies like this are the push against his type, which I think is very interesting because you and I grew up obviously around the same time. We watched a lot of the same Kurt Russell movies like at the same time. Like he did. He was already a quote unquote older actor to us when we started to know him. He was in this like second stage of his career. And then you go back and that's why I thought that this quote about like this movie being in the like three or four movies he thought like Hollywood finally like saw him um, was very interesting to me because I'm in the same brainwave as you. It's like it's all reversed for me because we had to go back. It's just like his career is a lot of like a banger and then like three kind of weird ones and then like a banger. He'll be in Sky High and then he'll also be in Death Proof. He'll be in Furious 7 <laughs> and then he'll also be in The Hateful Eight. I also think that people really like working with him. Um, he's in Hateful Eight. He's also in a very small part in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Obviously, like him and John Carpenter have a relationship and they did a lot of movies together. And like, I think just people like working with him. Um, he like that is sort of a, a through line of this movie as well in the production. And we'll talk about it. But um, Val Kilmer like suggested him for it. And like I all those things. I think that like that is also given him longevity in his career. And like for me, he is like equally the guy from The Thing and he is equally Herb Brooks from Miracle. <laughs> Miracle, a movie I adore. It I I can't we can't get it's into it because I'll just talk about it way too much. But Again. like yeah, but he will in this movie in Tombstone, he has like adult Kurt Russell voice where he's less gravelly. Like when he plays in those earlier films where he's sort of like a buff, hot, like action star, he has a very different voice, but he has like her Brooks adult miracle voice in this movie. And it was very distracting for me. And like 
That, along with the mustache that is real but feels fake, I was just like, this is a guy playing a guy. Where everyone else feels like their character, it feels like Kurt Russell is like playing dress up. And so that took me out of the movie. Um, But as I was reading about it, I did read a review that Roger Ebert loved Miracle and said it was probably Kurt Russell's best acting performance. It's like, fuck yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I, I, what lives rent free in my head is the way he says "not tonight." <laughs> people shit on Miracle, and people who shits are on Miracle? Literally incorrect. They're like, I mean, obviously it's corny, but it's real. Like it happened. <laughs> it's like maybe the peak of American pride. I look. <laughs> I'm like not even joking. I'm a dual citizen of a different country by choice, and it gets me going every time. <laughs> I'm brown, and I'm like, let me find a fucking flag. <laughs> So I literally can't watch that movie without crying. Um, anyway, I also just like dove into Kurt Russell's like personal life because um, I didn't know about it. And apparently he's like a massive gun rights activist and thinks that like putting restrictions on gun will have no effect on terrorism. And that's like something he's actively talked about. Um, but, you know, now he lives in Canada, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. He's un- like Canada's problem. Yeah, he uh, said openly in 2020 that he thinks actors should not talk about their personal beliefs because it distracts from their films. <laughs> I was like, mm, okay. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, actors of a certain uh, era. love this movie. <laughs> Glad that he lives in Canada now. <laughs> <laughs> so other than um, Kurt Russell's harrowed personal life, yeah. <laughs> um, what, are, what are some other stuff you looked up about this film? So the very first thing, because I am the way I am, is that I wanted to know how close this was to history. So we're going to have a little history lesson here. Are you ready? Um, okay. So in 1877, prospector Ed Shefflin went to southern Arizona to find silver. He found it in Tombstone, and he claimed the town and said, this is now a boom town. And it gained quite a reputation. People were coming out because it was fun and rowdy, you know, like the movie sort of portrays. Um, the Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and the main cowboys of Cochise County, uh, which is what they were referred to, um, were real. Like all the the Ike and Curly Bill and like all those people, those are all real people. Um, they were referred to as the cowboys of Cochise County, despite the fact that Tombstone was in Pinal County at the time, not Cochise, but that's okay. Um, the Birdcage Theater is real, which is where we see them uh, performing and uh, things like that. But it was built after the OK Corral shootout. So those two things don't interact. It's um, another piece of the movie that could have been cut out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a real like you can go see the Birdcage Theater. Still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so just that's, all, like they, they just do two plays. It's there. just fun, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the cowboys are real, um, like especially these main characters, like I said, but they were less gang-like. Like they were sort of all individual vigilante type outlaw rowdy people, um, but they didn't quite work all together. Um, so this is the, the story now of the OK Corral shooting. Um, and it goes like this. This is my Valley 101 voice. <laughs> in... <laughs> In 1881, a stagecoach traveling between Tombstone and Benson was held up and two people were killed. It was assumed the cowboys were behind the holdup and eventually it came out that three cowboys in particular were responsible. Billy Leonard, Jimmy Crane, and Harry Head. The three murderers escaped into New Mexico and by the summer, Wyatt Earp concocted a plan that would serve two purposes. 
It would bring in the bandits and it would improve Wyatt's political standing in town. He was already living in Tombstone at the time. One night, Wyatt met up with Ike Clayton, Joe Hill, and Frank McClory, two of those characters we know from the movie, and offered them a reward money for Leonard Crane and Head, uh, $1,200 each. All that they had to do was lure the cowboys into town, and the Earp brothers would take it from there. After Wyatt confirmed via telegram in June that the outlaws can be delivered dead or alive, Clanton allegedly agreed to the deal. But before they could do it themselves, the three outlaws were killed, so the deal fell through. But Ike Clanton was afraid that Wyatt had told others of their scheme, including Doc Holliday. Wyatt claimed that he didn't, and but he like knew that something was up because of the telegram. Ike didn't believe it and knew that if his crew found out about the deal, that he was basically as good as dead um, for not like giving them up. For the next month, Ike made continual threats against the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday and sort of pushing buttons like we saw in the movie. And on the night of the 25th, those threats were specific and menacing. And when Ike was drunk, armed, and still making threats on the morning of the 26th, it led to the eventual shootout at the OK Corral. So a little bit different. Um, Also, the fight lasted 30 seconds. (laughs) I thought that was very silly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, first of all, that was uh, Valley 101. You can yeah, listen to you're welcome. You get your podcasts. Um, and uh, thank you for that history lesson. It is fascinating um, to see how it actually played out. Much less cinematic Yeah, telegrams. I understand why they moved it. Um, yeah. It's also hard to be like, we're going to give up these other cowboys, yeah. and but then somebody else killed them off screen, basically. <laughs> and like... <laughs> going back so um anyway the movie was very successful it made 73.2 million dollars um and it was it came out on christmas day it opened uh during its weekend it opened third behind the pelican brief and mrs doubtfire not too shabby um especially since it had so many um like production issues it's pretty good that it came out third it's opening weekend I just watched the Pelican Brief for the first time. Incredible. You know, rock solid. Denzel and Julia. They looked at, <laughs> they looked like they were in love. They should have made out. That's the whole tension of the movie. Yep. Um, and then I wanted to know where exactly Tombstone was. Uh, it's southeast of Tucson. Um, I looked up a lot of little things. So then I wanted to know where the movie was filmed because of our famed filming issues. It's not actually filmed in Tombstone. Um, which is wild to me because a lot of those buildings are still there. <laughs> they should have just <laughs> done it there. But um, predominantly, the movie is filmed at the old Tucson Studios in Mescal, Arizona. Um, it is a very famous filming location for Westerns. Um, and they basically have like a whole setup of like 1800s era saloon town made up in the middle of the desert um, for anyone to kind of come in and shoot movies on. So. Do you want to get to the story about the directing issues? Yeah, sure. Part of this movie's, I guess, like legacy or or lore, for lack of a better term, is that Kurt Russell low-key directed it. Um, there was a lot of troubles that led up to this, including but not limited to Kevin Costner was originally supposed to be in the movie, then decided to not do the movie, and then decided to make a movie called Wyatt Earp that came out six months later. It was not very successful. It was also very long. Kevin Jar, uh, who was a screenwriter, and he had kind of been tapped as like all right this is your time to shine my guy as a director and he sucked um got fired george cosmatos came in to replace him and 
it didn't come out until afterward, but like Kurt Russell basically waited until both of them died and then said, yeah, I kind of directed this movie, um, which kind of tracks when you look at Cosmato's career. Uh, he worked a lot with Sly Stallone. And if you know anything about Sly, he is also very uh, particular on set. He's also he's claimed some stuff that he actually didn't have anything to do with. But he has, <laughs> you know, is known to like, you know, secretly be directing these movies as well. But Kurt Russell had a big hand in, you know, rewriting the movie and, and directing parts. Um, but didn't want it to be known that he was doing all that for a variety of reasons. Um, but including he just didn't want to take away from these two guys which is why he didn't say anything until they had both passed away. Other people on set have backed that claim. You know, Val Kilmer said that Kurt Russell did as much, but Michael Bean has said that Kurt Russell never specifically directed him. So um, a mixed bag, but uh, this movie was very chopped up and, and, and copied and pasted and stitched back together. Um, and a lot of it had to do with Kurt Russell and him really wanting to pull this movie through and, and push it through production. And you can kind of see how it's kind of hackneyed. There's that dr- scene with Johnny Ringo and Doc Holliday, and they're both drunk and they're speaking Latin to each other. And then all of a sudden it's daytime and Kurt Russell and uh, is going on a picnic and talking about room service. And then all of a sudden it's back to nighttime. Um, and it very well could have been like those two nighttime scenes were just one scene. Uh, but because of how uh, complicated the production was and how um, strange it all came together, it, it, there are some uh there's some fat to this movie there's a lack of continuity to this movie in general this was not the smoothest of productions and the fact that it came out with any sort of success um was a, like a small miracle yeah i think one of the biggest things that he's credited for doing is sort of refocusing the movie on um doc holiday and Wyatt Earp's friendship and making them sort of like the center of the film we love a bromance that's the thing also like another reason why like the women in the movie and like those relationships and romances don't matter as much for Wyatt Earp is because the the romance at the center of the movie is Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday they're the only two that kind of see each other and understand one another for real which I find lovely do you have any other questions about this film I like to ask this question when you have like a really personal connection to the movie uh when did you like first see Tombstone was like a movie you watched as a kid when did it sort of come into your life? I had watched Tombstone for the first time only a few years ago, but I had heard about Tombstone for like most of my life because my one of my brothers-in-law, this is his favorite movie. Amazing. Um, and he loves this movie, but like every time he would bring it up, I was like 13 or 15 and my sister was like, nah, maybe not yet. Yeah. Then again, my sister also showed me Reservoir Dogs. So uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> one of those where movie. like only the sister can do it, but the brother-in-law can't do that. But when I told him that I watched Tombstone, he's like, oh man, Doc Holliday, I'm your Huckleberry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, while you lived in Arizona, did you ever make your way down to Tombstone? <laughs> no, I only made my way down to, I made my way down to Tucson like once. Is it when we Level went to Tombstone. the front bottoms? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I, mean, I went the second time to go see The Head and the Heart. <laughs> okay, good. Um, That's it, though. Okay, so obviously this movie has a lot of gun shooting, but in a stylish way. Did this movie ever make you want to shoot a gun? No. It makes me <laughs> want to play Red Dead Redemption 2 again. Like, that's okay. it. I talked more about Kurt Russell than I did Val Kilmer, but I did read that Val Kilmer did learn how to do, like, the quick draw. Like, he worked mm-hmm. on his gun choreography almost um for this movie so i thought that was like a very cool little fact these are not questions but just things i wanted to say um one is that the the town of tombstone is doing an event 
at the end of June for this movie's 30th anniversary. A lot of the actors are going to be down there signing autographs and like doing Q&As and things like that. So if this movie is one of your top favorites and you want to go do that, that's an option for you. Um, I think it's like the 23rd through the 25th of June. Um, There's no place I'd rather not be than in the open desert at the end of June. (laughs) But whatever floats your boat. (laughs) Sometimes you got to skin that smoke wagon and see what happens. Sometimes. You know, I'm always saying that. Um, And then (laughs) the other thing I wanted to say is that there is sort of like an OK Corral style interactive Western town that has like a steakhouse and like a gun show and like actors dressed as like 1800s cowboys and all this kind of stuff. Um, It's called Rawhide. It's in Chandler. Um, You can like get your name like branded onto a horseshoe and like all this kind of stuff. I went as a kid like once maybe. Um, It's very touristy, but it is if you're into like Westerns and stuff, it's like pretty fun to walk around. Everything's like dusty in the saloons and get some like sarsaparilla and stuff. Granted, I have not been in probably 20 years. I have no idea what it's like now, but that was like (laughs) a very visceral memory I had as a child being like, ah, we live in the in a Western city. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because I never like put Arizona in my brain as like a Western, like Wild West situation. It's like the I Wild West. I I just thought of Cal- like I thought of California and Texas when it came to like cowboys. Unfortunately, um, but I also didn't grow up in Arizona, so all I had was the mob. Yeah, we had cowboys. There you go. Um. Okay. Do you have any questions for me? Just a few. I know your your love and affection for Snake. Yes. You can call him Snake from Escape from New York. Uh, would you rather go on a date with Snake or Wyatt Earp? Oh, God. Um, okay, I will say that I did not find Wyatt Earp attractive until the end when his he's, things are getting out of control. He's got His hair is not quaffed back perfectly anymore. And I was like, I like perked up a little bit. I was like, oh. <laughs> Where he's over there walking on water. Looking pretty good over there with your hair in your face. Um, but Snake is my answer. Eye patch and all. So hot. Eye patch over mustache. It's like... It's, the mustache is so bad and the muscles are so good that it just sort of <laughs> makes my decision pretty easy. And I'm not even like a big muscle girl, but I was like, we can escape to New York together. Yeah. Um, okay. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it, I, I think it, it was exactly the answer I was I was hoping for. <laughs> one other thing I wanted to say is one of my favorite podcasts, All Fantasy Everything, loves this movie. Um, and they talk about it probably every third episode. <laughs> That's really funny. I love that. Um, it is. It's such a dude's movie. Um, all right. And then lastly, because you watch this movie, you need to pick this. What is your favorite Doc Holiday moment or line? Oh, the best one is the one I texted you while I was watching it is uh, Doc Holiday being uh, accused of being too drunk to shoot. And he's like, I got two guns, one for each of you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was very funny. Oh, it's so good. There. Now we can be friends again. Amazing. I, yeah. I get it. Just not for me. There's one human being that could have pulled off I'm Your Huckleberry as a cool line, and it's uh, Doc Holliday. Yeah. Would you watch this movie again? Mm, maybe. <laughs> you could just say no. Probably not. Um, 
No, probably not. Uh, I did have one more fun fact about Kurt Russell that I thought was interesting is that uh, the very last thing that Walt Disney ever wrote was Kurt Russell's name on a piece of paper. That's how long Kurt Russell's been in the industry. (laughs) His whole life. Uh, Okay. Yep. Uh, Not really for me. I'm glad I saw it. This movie is beloved. And so I, that is important to me to see movies that are beloved and important to others and make a lot of money and are important to the culture. So if you liked this movie, here are a few more that you might like as well. Westerns are dime a dozen, but I tried to kind of hammer it home in terms of like modern westerny or or at least 90s westerns so unforgiven um, probably one of the greatest westerns ever made um clint eastwood film 1992 award-winning not much else to say about that um it is a little bit more like serious and somber than tombstone uh but it, it is they did capture that like regeneration or that revival of westerns in the 90s uh speaking of 90s uh the quick and the dead it's a sam raimi western and it has sharon stone gene hackman russell crowe a young leo um about gunslingers coming for like a shootout basically it's not a perfect movie but like i've spent time watching worse movies it's like 100 minutes um there's some cool raimi-ness to it and it's fun watching a raimi movie that is a western and then lastly, this comes with an asterisk because of the stars, but um, The Heart of They Fall came out in 2021 on Netflix. It does star Jonathan Majors, who's kind of in it, has his situation right now, but also has awesome performances from Idris Elba, Zazie Beetz, Regina King, Lakeith Stanfield. Um, and that's kind of oh, yeah. more on the like the side of like slick Western that's like shoot them up and has some gangs and has like the tropes and, and cool rivalries that boil up between gangs. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was a very stylish film. So if you don't mind seeing Jonathan Majors in a movie right now, uh, that is a that is a fun one to watch. Amazing. What well, great job. We, we did, did it. it. The All best. Right, dude. Um, <laughs> this is going to be easy. Which movie did you like the most out of the two? Psycho. Which movie did you like the most? Psycho's better, but like, I'll watch Tombstone more often. I understand. Should we retire this question? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, uh, audience. That's the last time we're gonna ask which one we liked more out of the two. <laughs> what we're not retiring though is which movie would Louis love more. Oh, I think Louis would really like Tombstone. Oh, I was gonna say Psycho. Really, I feel like he <laughs> loves just like a stoic man. But it's a lot of guns. I think the whole Norman Bates pretending to be his mother would make. Louis, very uncomfortable. I don't think he would like it. I I think it would not hit. He'd be like, that's not that's not my vibe. That's not for me. I think he would like Tombstone a lot. I think he would like the thrill, though. He'd be like, he'd feel just like, oh, he feels something, you know? Yeah, Tombstone can give him that. Okay. He yeah, likes he, a man trying to do the right thing. You think he would see himself as more of a Doc or more of a Wyatt? A Wyatt. He wants to keep the peace until the very yeah. until he until he can't. I think he would like this movie. Debatably, he could be more of a Virgil who just wants the right things to be done. I loved Sam Elliott in this movie, but I (laughs) am an easy mark for Sam Elliott. I like anything Sam Elliott does. Sam Elliott's been Sam Elliott for like decades. I mean, that's that's how life works. But (laughs) thank God for us, Um, man. All right. So next on the docket, we're moving even more west and we're doing something similar. We're doing some Los Angeles movies. Yeah, we are. We're going to swap Under the Silver Lake and Heat. Um, One is certainly more famous than the other, but (laughs) 
Um, Zach, why don't you tell me what you know about Under the Silver Lake? I know it was. Uh, it has Andrew Garfield. I know it has Riley Keough. Um, I know it's divisive. And I know that you're a fan of it. And I've been wanting to watch this movie for a bit, knowing that you love it. And so I figured it'd be one to save for the pod. Um, so I'm excited to finally dive into this film. Uh, what do you know about Heat? I think that Heat, I mean, I know uh, Al Pacino is in it. Um, uh, it is obviously one of the most beloved movies of uh, The Ringer, which is a, web, a publication that we love so much. What a great website. What a great website. Um, I'm excited to know the references now. Um, but I think more importantly, along the lines of like Tombstone, Armageddon, The Fast and Furious, like these are movies that are so not in my zone, which is why I also like doing this podcast with you. Like even if I don't end up loving the film and you've definitely introduced me to movies I have adored, uh, it I want to see movies that are like culturally important. And I know that Heat has like so much longevity and like people just love Heat. And so I'm excited to see it. Can I ask, um, is young hot Al Pacino in it, which is my favorite debate right now on the internet? <laughs> it depends on how you feel about 90s Pacino, but it's in the 90s. Okay. Okay. But you do get hot Val Kilmer. Another Val Kilmer? It is another Val. I, I, I wanted to like save that, but I'm like, you know what? That reaction deserves to be on the pod. Wow. This is real... Really Val Kilmer's moment, like pre-Batman. Oh, my God. I had no yeah. idea. Oh, yeah, I, he, okay. He, so I have seen Val Kilmer in Batman also. I forgot about that. Okay. Um, okay. But <laughs> Tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had no idea. So that's so yeah, fun. I'm excited because I've only watched this movie, I think, twice. Um, and it's so long and uh, so uh, storied that it's hard to just parse through everything. And um, it's also just a fun heist movie. I will say that like I know literally nothing about the plot. Like, I don't Sick. know what the movie Heat is about. Do you know what the movie Under the Silver Lake is about? I think I kind of do. Okay. I, but, like, to my understanding, it's, like, Andrew Garfield's character is way too into, like, noir movies or noir things or mysteries or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, I understand. But I don't want to put too much thought through it. All right. So, those are the movies we're swapping. We're talking about L.A., Amanda's about to watch her fourth very athletic, very masculine film. Um, she'll get some food later this year, though. Uh, <laughs> other than those movies, what is on your watch list? I'm going to continue down my James Bond hole, um, especially now that I have access to Max's uh, DVD collection. It will be much easier for me to watch all of them. Um, and then two movies that are coming out in June that I'm really looking forward to. And by the time this uh, episode comes out I don't think I would have seen them yet um, but Past Lives which is set to be one of the best movies of the year I'm very excited to see it and then my boy Wes Anderson is back already with a new movie Asteroid City also like a western style um, and it takes place in the desert I'm very excited every actor you could have ever thought of is in this movie um, and I just, I love Wes Anderson. So I'm very excited to see Asteroid City. Um, I forgot Zach, that that's coming out in June. I, I'm like, also excited for Past Lives. I've been waiting for that one. Like so soon. Like yeah. I like had Asteroid City in my head, like fall, like wait, like so much further down. 
I'm so excited to see Past Lives. Like, everybody we know who gets to see movies ahead of time has been talking about it and, like, really keying it up as, like, one of the movies. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to finally see it as well. Um, Zach, what is on your list? Um, speaking of Past Lives, kind of in the same vein, Kelly Reichardt's uh, showing up. is going to be playing at the Beverly um, yeah, this week. So that's on my list as well dive down there and, and watch it while i have some time uh on the opposite end of the spectrum in 2023 releases uh fast x comes out uh i think this weekend when we're recording this so i'll watch it i'm sure i'll like it'll be fine uh you know just hoping the be- hoping for the best from you know our greatest hawaiian jason momoa and i've heard we'll he's see. like the best part of the movie so that's helpful as he should be across the spider-verse will i think have come out by the time this episode comes out I just have the biggest expectations for that one. And then uh, a throwback is uh, that I hope to watch is Master Commander, a like nautical battle movie featuring Russell Crowe um, that there's a real hive for. So I'm is it like about that one. Battleships, the, the movie? Uh, I think it's not like that movie at all, other than the fact that they... No, like, I guess more like... Is it like the game Battleship? Oh, movie version, not like not than the... the movie Battleship. <laughs> uh, I think so. I'm, I'm not. I'm not super sure. Amazing. I, I just know it, it has Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany, and they. Ooh. I don't I know. Like fire Paul cannons Bettany. at each other. I sure. like Paul Bettany. Um, all right. Thank you guys so much for listening. It is a pleasure as always. Um, you can find a new episode of the Blind Spotters podcast on the second Tuesday of the month. Um, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at BlindSpottersPod. You can also follow us on Twitter at BlindSpotters. Um, I did just want to shout out that this was the first episode in four months that we did not talk about birthdays. <laughs> <laughs> but we well, will now, be now talk- it doesn't. We will be talking about it next month. Um, Zach, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ZachPocklub. And as always, you can find me on Letterboxd. How about you? You can send me any compliments on any social media platform at Amanda Luberto. Let's get out let's of get here. Let's get out of here. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Bye. Uh, Johnny, I apologize. I forgot you were there. You may go now. <laughs>